Hi, this is the Leading Language and Literature Podcast with me, Chris Jordan. In this episode, I'm talking with Chris Shaw. Chris is Assistant Head Teacher and Head of English at a Welsh medium school in Swansea. In addition to that, he is a regional advocate for Lit Drive UK and a vocal presence on Twitter, where he tweets under the handle Athro Saisenegg. We discuss the best text he's ever read, taught or been taught, the teaching and learning initiatives he's been part of that makes him proud to do the job, the fact that it's a changing time for the curriculum in Wales and what this has meant in English, experiences Chris has had in attempts to improve students' home learning, an element of his approach or practice that he would like to improve on in the coming year, and finally, how Key Stage 3 is structured in Chris's school and an explanation for the choices made. Thanks again to Chris for sharing his time and passion for the subject and being candid about all the ways in which he's looking to improve alongside the elements of the job in which he clearly excels. If you want to be kept up to date on when educational chat like this happens, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast and or follow me on Twitter at ChrisJordanHK. Uh, okay, Chris, so uh, what is the best text you've ever read, taught, or been taught whilst you were at school yourself? I think this was the hardest question in all honesty. It's so difficult because, you know, I've always split the question, the answer up into the three sections because I think if I think back to my school days, even though English was always at the top of my sort of favourite subject list, I'm thinking about the text I was taught and I'm sort of thinking sort of a little bit envious or jealous of students nowadays because I just think the text and the access they've got to those texts is much richer than we had back then. But I would probably say in terms of having been taught, um, I'm going to go for the um, Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, Conan Doyle, which was a text I probably only encountered whilst at university. And that's really the text probably that I had been taught that hooked me the most. So I will always make sure uh, when I'm teaching that I, I get um, a sub Sherlock Holmes as part of the uh, the curriculum for students. Um, and then I was thinking about texts that I have taught myself. And I'm thinking I absolutely love um, teaching the drama texts um, and things like Tennessee Williams's Cat in the Hot Tin Roof. Streetcar Named Desire, they are always texts that I really enjoy teaching because I just think um, contextually Williams is a, is a fascinating writer um, t- to look at. And that's something I'm, you know, quite fond of doing. Um, at the moment, um, we have been reading The Book Thief um, by Marka Zuzak um, with our current year eight cohort. Um, and I do think I'm going to be I'm going to put it out there that I do think the book thief is one of the the greatest novels ever written about the Second World War. I just think it's fantastic, um, and I think the challenge of doing that with a case history group has been, uh, you know, that at the moment would be top of my list. But it probably does change on, on a daily basis if I'm honest with you. <laughs> I, I never thought about that uh, that way before in terms of enviousness in terms of the, the the students that we teach nowadays but I'd agree with you on that I can I can barely remember like most of the books that we did at school I can remember the kind of the tar, 
the the tried and the tested ones like of mice yeah. and men and uh, to kill a mockingbird and stuff like that but you're absolutely right now to say the amount of conversation that's going on amongst teachers and stuff like the students have like such a wide uh, or such a massive opportunity to 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 be exposed to like some amazing uh, texts and things like that um you're someone who's obviously quite active uh, online on twitter and 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 these things and you're quite au fait or you're within the conversation about like teaching and learning uh, initiatives so what kind of teaching and learning initiatives have you been part of that that make you proud um to do the job given you know your current responsibilities at your school and such yeah i think you know what in terms of my career pathway then um, i've obviously been head of english for um, over 10 years now in a couple of different schools and at my current school I've gone on to uh, be a, an associate assistant head teacher and now a full-time associate assistant head teacher with with maintain, whilst maintaining my responsibility for head of English so I do think you know it's moving to whole school projects that have that has been maybe the most exciting or innovative initiatives that I've been part of um, so recently and this is really look, focusing on maybe a response to to the pandemic is we've been looking at oracy um, as an entire school um, thinking about how to develop and how to improve um, learners confidence when it comes to oracy and I suppose our context is quite specific because I'm head of English in a Welsh medium school Um, (laughs) so obviously our learners are dealing with both languages um, in, in many ways both languages you could argue are their first languages but just to put that into context um, you know we're a Welsh medium comprehensive in Swansea where 90% of our pupils come from homes where no Welsh is spoken mm. um, so that presents its own challenges but to go back to the initiative I think Oracy we felt was a massive priority for us as a school mostly because these learners hadn't had access or hadn't been using the Welsh language um, when they were obviously in the lockdown period uh, but obviously it's relevant to us as English as a subject area as well um, and we've really taken I suppose the lead of Voice 21 who we've been working with um, and I know lots of teachers it's very very popular on things like Twitter the, the Voice 21 initiative um, and I think that's really proven a, a really exciting project for us because uh, we've got a research group in school who really had to sort of maybe we had to boil down and pare down when it comes to teaching and when it comes to um, upskilling oracy. What are the priorities for our learners? You know, what are the really key things um, that we need to focus on? And um, having done that sort of research and reading um, and looking at things like Quigley's um, text, you know, on closing the, the vocabulary gap. Um, There's lots of really useful um, reports by the Education Endowment Foundation as well. You know, we we pared it down eventually to five things or five strategies we really felt were were worthwhile pursuing in in improving oracy. Uh, And those were essentially things that I don't think would be new to anybody listening, uh, but things that we really wanted to work on as an initiative. So we thought about um, think-pair-share as a a questioning strategy, which I'm sure people will be thinking, well, we know all about that. Um, (laughs) um, But 
even I will say myself, if somebody asked me a few weeks ago, do you or, or do you do think pair share with your learners? I would say, of course I do. It's you know, a natural thing. But I would even then, as a reflective practitioner, think, well, do I do it properly? Mm. Um, and I actually think of making sure that we give these strategies time to bed in properly um, is a really important thing. And I think think pair share is a really good example of that, actually, because do we, for example, give our learners time to really think in silence or quietly about a question before we ask them um, for a response? Um, you know, I, I don't know if that's, if that's something I was consistently applying to my own practice. Um, and that's, you know, that initiative has really made me think about that. But uh, the five strategies were think pair share, um, the vocabulary toolkit, and I may say a little bit more about that in a moment. Um, and, and then lots of these, I think, um, essentially, I think are stolen from or borrowed from Doug Limov's, um Teach Like a Champion series. So there's the ABC questioning um, strategy, which I think um, the acronym stands for um, answer, build and challenge. So let's say if you're in a classroom, you'd one pupil would answer, then you'd instruct another pupil to build on what's just been said. And then to extend that, then you would ask another learner to maybe challenge um, the point that's just been made. Um, and a really, really useful one, and I, I don't know if this is true in all schools, but I think getting learners back into school mode has been a challenge post-pandemic, um, has been the listening switch which um, is a technique that they've really promoted um, in Empathy Lab. Empathy Lab is all about building empathy in students. And it's that idea, do we actually really take the time mm -hmm. to listen to what our um, pupils or what other people in the classroom are actually telling us? So, you know, that oracy initiative has been, it's still, I suppose, in its sort of genesis stage, um, but that's, I think, is going to have massive payoffs for us um, as English practitioners and within other departments as well. So I think that's been an initiative that I've really, really um, enjoyed sort of leading on. And we're still sort of very much um, in the process of learning in relation to that. I'm really glad you said that, um, Chris, actually. I think that's something which I've been looking into a lot recently. I've reached out to uh, Sarah Davies uh, to try and get her on the podcast, uh, hopefully, mm -hmm. I was meant to speak to her the other day, actually, and I had to reschedule, sadly, but hopefully I'll be able to get her on soon. And yeah, I, I think um, Jenny Webb did something on Oracy the other day. So that, yeah, fantastic to kind of get some insights in terms of certain strategies that, that you're trying out. And I completely agree with that think pair share thing in terms of really asking yourself, do you do it properly? And when they um, pair up or when they kind of discuss things with a partner, how exactly did they do that? Like who speaks first? How do they start the conversation and stuff like that? So yeah, really interesting. I'm really glad yeah. you brought up the Oracy thing. Yeah. And I think I think going back to what I was saying about vocabulary as well, it's you know, mm. we can have as English teachers, we can sometimes get, get into this fascination of, oh, they can have, you know, a mat for this, or um, you know, they can have a slide with the vocabulary, a sentence starters on, but then actually thinking, you know, we spend time sometimes putting these resources together. Are we actually thinking about how we maximize their efficiency? Mm. So, for example, with learners, if you're giving them three or four, let's say, sentence patterns or constructions, I think you're probably better off persevering with those three or four until they become habit rather than trying to, you know, I'm guilty sometimes in lessons of trying to maybe throw too much at them and think, yeah. you know, see, so you've got to then think about cognitive overload. Um, and I really do think it's about embedding routines um 
and making them, you know, making them stick essentially. And I do think the the Orsi strategy, you know, we pared it down to five sort of pedagogical approaches, and maybe in many ways, maybe five is too many. You know, maybe it's about, you know, going back to Mary Myatt, you know, there were things greater depth, I think is a mantra mm. that we are trying to apply, not just in this initiative, but but across what we do as as a school really, you know, and as a department as well. I think yeah, that's and it's a it's a brave or a bold decision to make to only to limit it to only a couple, I think. But you, yeah, you're right. Uh, more, uh, well, less in in greater depth, rather. I, yeah, completely concur with yeah. that. Um, when we were speaking over email or or over Twitter and, and and that kind of thing, you kind of referenced in passing the fact that um, it's like it's quite a it's it's a changing time for the new curriculum for Wales and also the positioning of English within the curriculum in Wales. So what has this actually meant in practice? This this is such a, a burning issue here in Wales. And I'm really aware <laughs> that, um, you know, um, I was really fortunate a couple of years ago to to um, complete um, a, a master's in subject teaching um, with colleagues from over the border, really. Most of them were based in England. Um, and really to get their feedback really on what is um, you know this new this brave new world of curriculum for Wales um, and essentially as opposed to simplify it is one of the key changes with the new um, curriculum for Wales is that um, subject disciplines will be subsumed into what we're calling areas of learning and experience um, so a really clear example would be that history, geography, and religious studies um, still remain as subject disciplines, but they would be collaborating and co-constructing mm-hmm. as a humanities AOLE. Okay. Um, so when we look at English, the subject discipline of English continues to exist, but it exists within this bigger banner of um, what's abbreviated as LLC, um, Languages, Literacy and Communication. So um, in our context, that would be the Welsh Department, um, the English Department and the um, Modern Foreign Languages or what we're now calling in Wales International Languages, that they collaborate and co-construct a curriculum as an area of learning and experience. Um, so if you were a learner in Wales, you were coming to a school when the new curriculum comes into um, comes to pass in September 2023, um, that learners um, would still probably be having English lessons, Welsh lessons, international languages lessons, but there would be a clear evidence of co-construction and collaboration um, between those subject disciplines. Um, so, for example, you know, we might go down the thematic route where, um, mm. you know, ourselves and the Welsh Department would be sort of co-constructing tasks around a similar theme or maybe an inquiry-led um, focus. So, you know, that's that's the basis for the new curriculum for Wales. Um, and I think one of the most controversial things at the moment is, as you can imagine, because we're, we're building up a new curriculum, um, that that is going to lead um, to a reorganisation of um, qualifications. Um, so, um, for example, in GCSE, at GCSE, GCSE English Language and Literature are going to be combined into one GCSE. Um, and I think that does concern quite a f- number of the teaching profession, uh, you know, as English teachers, because we're just perhaps a little bit concerned um, about the positioning of literature within that new 
And, you know, we're at a, you know, we really want to get children reading, don't we? I think we all would say that as English teachers. And we just maybe worry, is there a narrowing rather than a broadening of the curriculum at that stage? Um, so, you know, there are some divisive issues that are ongoing, but, um, you know, it's an exciting time, but it's a time of real change and real fast change. And I think trying to marry that with a global pandemic has been... <laughs> has been difficult, you know, um, I, I'd be honest in say, saying that, uh, you know, so one of the um, focuses I looked at, and this was published in Nate magazine, um, was, for example, the positioning of Shakespeare. Um, so within the new curriculum and within the areas of learning and experience, um, in the initial draft, um, there was no named writers whatsoever. So when you were constructing a case three curriculum in English for learners in Wales, you would have no text that you would have to study, for example. Um, so there were no um, suggested writers even at that stage. Um, so I think, you know, um, I was talking about um, whether or not, you know, would schools, for example, opt out of Shakespeare? Now, you can't imagine English departments sort of rushing to do that. Um, but I do, I did have concerns about the entitlement for, for, for learners. You know, we've got to make sure that we really do, um, again, I'll quote Mary Mayette, you know, that we give them work above their pay grade. Um, and I think the fact that those decisions rest with a classroom teacher or a department did concern me. It's interesting in the most recent draft, in the most recent iteration, they have actually listed some suggested writers now. Um, and I was glad to see that Shakespeare was one of those. Um, so, you know, I do think, um, and there are exciting opportunities I think it, it creates. You know, I, I'm a massive advocate of um, Welsh writing in English, i.e. writing in the English um, language by Welsh authors, because I just don't feel we as a nation sell ourselves enough in that sense you know there are there are fantastic writers in wales who maybe aren't finding their way into our learners curricula and i just think it's such a brilliant opportunity to really push that boat out um you know to make sure that our learners learn about texts uh, and writers who who if not are welsh but are based in wales and are rooted in in you know our own sort of national identity um, and I think what was really interesting as part of my um, thesis, actually, for the Masters uh, was sort of finding out that in Scotland uh, that there's one entire paper um, on the Scottish hires that's dedicated just to Scottish writers. You know, and I'm just thinking that's a brilliant innovation and I would love for us to have something um, sort of of equal value here in Wales. I, I that's that's so funny that like it, it resonates. I mean, at the moment, I, I'm teaching in an IB school, and quite a lot of what you're saying there is, is is similar in some way to to the way that the IB is set up. So maybe there's there's a little bit of inspiration there. Um, but um, on on a slightly different tact, um, the or a different kind of uh, avenue or kind of mm -hmm. tangent, I should say, um. You've already you mentioned before you've been obviously been head of department for like a decade now and um, in, in different schools and that kind of thing. But um, I recently spoke to someone um, on a podcast like Donald Hale, and he talked about like one of his weaknesses or, or I suppose an, an area of improvement that he'd like to work on was the way that he, they did uh, homework in his yeah. school. Um, so what, what kind of insights have you got to, uh, how, how do you handle homework in your experience, Chris? <laughs> yes, yeah, such a, such a pressing question. I, 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 I listened to that uh, podcast with Donald. I, I just, I, 
everything that he mentioned on that during that conversation sort of really resonated with myself um, because I do think homework is sort of it's the next as a research group in the school it's our next big project uh, you know I think one of the things I've been privileged to do in my role is sort of visit other schools um, you know, and I am going to give a name drop here to some of those schools because um, we obviously did the Michaela visit, which was fascinating in terms of their sort of self-quizzing approach for homework. Um, we've also worked with a, a school in Cardiff um, and we um, recently visited the Dustin School, um, Sam Strickland, who wrote the Education Exposed um, books. So we visited there um, in November and really part of the rationale for our visits there was thinking about what these and really high achieving successful schools do to do uh, do sorry to instill independence amongst learners um and i think that goes hand in hand with homework um i would definitely say we haven't cracked homework in english yet um, i'm a big advocate um of some of the technological developments that have been during lockdown you know i find um that lots of the homework I will be setting my learners now across the key stages is via Microsoft Forms, you know, within the Teams platform, because we can then really think about quizzing them using um, retrieval practice and recall. Um, and the fact that these quizzes and forms are actually self-marking means that it's a really efficient use of time as well. I really like Donald's point. I think he mentioned, you know, the idea of using maybe eight out of 10 as a sort of score to sort of ensure that learners have actually, you know, actually met that demand of the homework. Um, and I do think, you know, we're, we're having discussions about maybe structuring homework um, as a whole school calendar, um, because I just think it's so important that we give it its rightful sort of priority and precedence. Um, you know, there are, there are initiatives out there, things like class charts, show my homework, which are lots of websites and schools use. Um, but, you know, I was reading up on... Um, you know, Professor Dylan Williams there, when I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, Chris, but I'll say it anyway, uh, that he was quoted as saying that most homework teachers set is crap. Um, uh, and I, I do think we need to think about the purpose and the value of the homework we're setting. You know, I think that's an absolute um, yeah. must do if we're going to make sure that it has the effect that we want it to. Um, you know, I, I've sort of thought about this and I think that, one thing teachers associate with homework is it can be a lot of administration, can't it? You know, how many of the 32 in your class have done their homework? Right, so if 28 of them have done it, what am I doing about the four who haven't done it? How am I getting in touch with parents? How am I getting the buy-in? So I do think, you know, thinking about digital solutions is possibly um, the way forward. And, and one thing that occurred to me, actually, is in, you know, we live in a world where, um, research and research-informed practice is such a big thing. Um, and it's really interesting that nobody so far has actually gone out there and written the sort of go-to book on homework. Um, and I think that's fascinating that that gap does exist. Um, I would say as a, you know, I'm, I'm listing lots of reasons here, the problems with homework and maybe not giving many solutions, but I think that's maybe indicative 
of the situation with relation to homework. I do think that knowledge organisers and self-quizzing, and we're on a journey with that. I think we're in the fifth year of having knowledge organisers within our, our cases three and cases four curriculum, and we're still refining, we're still learning from our own mistakes there. So I do think that's something uh, that we want to sort of um, think about strengthening at our school. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think um, the idea of setting homework for the sake of saying homework is is something that every single teacher has done at some point i would i would imagine in their life and yeah that is such a good point there what you say that most of the time it it tends to be um following up on students which just have not done what they were supposed to do yeah. so i probably i end up like yeah spending more time checking on that than actually seeing the 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 the, you know, the kind of quality I'm of the if we, if we think about a really simple example, so I've got my sixth form class at the moment who are reading Bronte's Jane Eyre for their AS in English Literature, and they know without question every week they will have a 10-question quiz to actually check and to self-check that they've read the chapter that they're reading by next lesson. And it's really simple, but mm. it works really well. It works mm fantastically well because those questions mark themselves so every lesson before the lesson has started i've got a very good gauge of who's read what and where the misconceptions are so if we think about that idea of flipped learning then homework is the answer you know and it really sets up that independence of study habits as well so i think the the solutions are maybe more simple or more straightforward than you know but i think it's designing that in advance mm. and having that plan of action that really could pay dividends that you know that's my take on it anyway and i know you know we are a subscriber to Massolit, which is a game changer um at gcc and a level um and that's a brilliant resource and i do i still want to go down the road of of that sort of flipped learning premise that I think that that's that's a really good way of of setting homework so that they're preparing for the next lesson. You know, and it works equally well if they're recapping what they've done in a in a previous lesson as well. But I you know I am trying to steer away from um homework that's things like oh finish this off um mm. or have a look at this. I think it needs to be more mm. meaningful than that. So I mean you you've talked about a few kind of holistic things or like school wide um initiatives that are really exciting for you to seek your teeth into but like as an individual i guess chris like what element of your approach or practice would you like to improve at in the coming months years uh, yeah it's it's it was difficult to narrow this one down to be honest um I, you know i've talked about homework I, you know i think the one i'm probably going to go after is accuracy um mm. As in, in terms of making sure that students' writing is more accurate, um, you know, every year when I have a conversation with the line manager about sort of GCSE um, outcomes of English, you know, um, I'll just give you a very quick example that in a GCSE in English language in Wales, um, 50%, so half of the marks a student could gain are based on technical accuracy. Um, so, for example, if you were writing a, a response in a GCSE um, examination in English language in Wales, um, examiners would be trained and told to indicate every single error in a student's piece of writing as part of the um, assessment process for that. So what are we doing to make sure that we are, you know, getting our students' writing to be as accurate as possible? And how are we starting that off? So I'm really interested at the moment in working with our 
um, cluster of primary schools to think about what specific strategies did they use um, to support sort of technical accuracy. And it's not the most exciting thing in the world, is it really, when you think about um, teaching students, but I think it's so massively important. You know, we, you know, how many times have we written in a report or in a comment to a learner, right, it's really important that you proofread and edit your work. Um, and, you know, how do we do that? You know, I think that would be a relative question for students to ask. Yeah, I, I watched um, a kind of like a CPD thing uh, in the last few days at one of those, uh, one of Jenny Webb's uh, CPDs, and it was talking about writing. And she she basically said that you can boil down a lot of maybe the majority of like student errors to uh, fragments, tenses. Um, uh, she gave like five or six examples and I've, I've lost them now but um, I think it comes back to that flip learning thing again something that I've thought about doing is like maybe we can um, or maybe within like within a school you can ha- kind of have like a resource like a, a bank of videos that relate to like this is what a fragment is this is what it looks like this is why you've probably written it and this is how you fix it and the same with tenses the same with uh, run-on sentences that was another one and that kind of thing like maybe maybe that's a, a solution because it's certainly yeah. I, I i completely agree with you that it it might not be the sexiest kind of thing yeah. in the world but it's it's so vital and, it, and it's something that crops up with every year level in every cohort so yeah, I think it's really interesting that lots of departments are pushing strategies like the 200-word challenge, 200-word challenge, aren't yeah. they, and using that as a, as a sort of building of that writing resilience. But I think with us, it's more of a case of it's not just the resilience, it's making sure that the writing is, a, you know, are they checking their own work? Are mm. they, you know, proofreading for basic errors? Are they making sure, you know, that sentences are properly um, constructed and punctuated? You know, we uh, took part in the um, normal marking pilot with our year sevens mm. a year ago, you know, um, Daisy Christmas. Yeah. To do um, project there, and what we noticed is when we had the sort of feedback from that, you know, the market difference in our learners' writing and, and reading ages, you know, that the writing ages were significantly below achievements in reading, and I'm sure that was mirrored across the pilot. So, you know, I think we all know that there, that issue exists. It's what are we doing to sort of tackle that? That I, I really want to sort of sink my teeth into as we sort of move forward. Mm, it would be interesting to find out, I think. Um, and then uh, my last question for you, Chris, today is is probably one which I've thought about the most of late. I've seen a couple of Twitter posts about this weirdly in the, in the last week, but um, it, it was uh, what is uh, Key Stage 3 or how is Key Stage 3 uh, structured in your school and can you explain the choices in terms of the concepts or the skills or the, the text, however it's kind of set up and, and why you made them? Yeah, I think you know it's it's such a it's such a fascinating topic, isn't it? I think I was looking at a Twitter thread. Um, I think it was just yesterday, which, which sort of exploded. I think it may have been Freya um, in Rome who sort of instigated it. Um, and I think it's something that, as practitioners, we're really passionate about, isn't it? Thinking because that's I suppose the only area of curriculum in a secondary context where we have control i suppose over uh, what we can teach and how we can teach it so you know we i think you know we like to think of ourselves as research informed uh, you know i will name drop chris curtis's book um, how to teach english um andy sarby's making every english lesson count um they have been sort of cornerstone texts that we've looked at and gone back to look at when thinking about our curriculum choices um and i think we've probably got gone for a thematic route um 
just because of what I was saying earlier about this need for co-construction and collaboration within the new model um, in curriculum for Wales, because I think that felt that we felt that that model would be more sustainable. It would offer more maybe links um, across languages um, and more natural links for us to explore. So, you know, um, I think probably the biggest step change we've made in terms of our key stage three um, curriculum is moving from three yearly units so there would have been term one term two and term three down to two units so that they would look at a concept or theme over half of the school year and then move on to another concept or theme over the other half and I think that really does stem from this idea that we want to go after this fewer things greater depth less is more mentality and that's really helped i think deepen the approach so if i give you an example um so in year seven for example um they would look at um literary legends as a theme to sort of explore from um starting in year seven until around possibly february time so this might involve thinking about the origins of stories um you know looking at examples of popular myths and legends including those that are relevant um to Wales specifically, um, the class reader then would tie in thematically with that. And we offer a choice of class readers um, for more or less every theme because we feel it's important that um, A, the teacher has real ownership over their choices um, and that they can have some sort of, and they can tailor their, their curriculum then for their learners. Um, and I think that theme also encompasses things like etymology and thinking about the origins of language. And it takes them, I suppose, from classical texts like things like um, Beowulf um, all the way up to um, Shakespeare, where we look at um, episodes from A Midsummer Night's Dream during that first part of year seven. Um, so they've really got a good grounding there in narratives um, and how stories are constructed. And then for the second half of year seven, then um, they focus on a much more contemporary theme, which is um, the environment. Um, so this is where we really do sort of um, offer opportunities to bring in a lot of nonfiction. Um, so th things like speeches like Greta Thunberg, for example, uh, would be on there. But also within that living planet or environmental theme, they would be tackling, you know, po um, William Blake's The Tiger, um, you know, and then as part of that, maybe comparing that with um, Solly Raphael, who is an Australian spoken word poet. He's only a young boy who was um, who sort of went viral for his spoken word poetry on um, on tackling climate change. So there's a real diversity to that then, um, and it offers the scope. And I think you know a question we are asking moving forward is within a key stage three curriculum, is there room for um, a non-fiction class reader? You know, is there scope for um, more extended reading of a non-fiction text? Because I think when we think about this across our case history, there's a tendency sometimes with non-fiction texts that you look at them in smaller chunks and it's sort of, it can feel a little bit piecemeal. So that's something we're really thinking about now. And I would say the same uh, when we move up into year eight and year nine, when we think about poetry and we think about speeches, because we tend to at the moment, um, for example, when year nine are doing um, a unit on, um, you know, finding your voice and protest poetry, uh, is there a danger that by looking at, different poems across a different range of period you know does it become a little bit sort of 
I think I'll go back to the word piecemeal rather than something where they can really sink their teeth into it. But, uh, you know, I think a class reader is a is a staple of every sort of thematic unit with us, um, you know, and we really do cover a range. We go from um, things like A Monster Calls or The Hobbit um, in year seven um, via texts like um, um, The Book Thief, which I mentioned earlier in year eight. Uh, moving on then um, to texts like um, Animal Farm um, and Macbeth um, in Year 9. So, you know, we really are wanting to be high challenge with our curriculum, but also wanting to make it really accessible and interesting for our learners. Um, I, you know, I, it would be remiss of me not to mention the fact that in Year 8, there's also a strong thematic focus on those that idea of Welsh writers. Uh, we do a really exciting project every year um, based on Dylan Thomas as a comprehensive school in Swansea. You know, we cannot avoid Dylan Thomas. <laughs> He's here everywhere across the city. So that's something that really, I think, proves really popular with our learners because, you know, for essentially, so, so they might read a text like um, Thomas's poem, The Hunchback in the Park. Um, which is a poem which deals with, you know, the isolation of a, of a homeless person um, in Swansea. Well, the great thing for us is we can literally um, put our learners onto a coach, go to the park, which inspired that poem. Mm. Dylan Thomas's birthplace is literally opposite that park. So I just think there are such fantastic opportunities, um, mm. you know, to root our learners' experiences in their own locality. Um, and I think what's great about, um, you know, Twitter and CPD is just how you encounter new texts. Um, you know, we took a group of year eight learners. I think it was our first um, trip post-pandemic to see a play called The Boy With Two Hearts. Um, it was performed in Cardiff and it's essentially a play um, written by an Afghan writer, um, which is all about um, the journey of Afghan refugees um, coming to Cardiff and setting in Wales. It's a fantastic text that we wouldn't, I don't think five or ten years ago we would have heard about. Um, so the fact that these new texts are emerging and we're able to put those straight into our curriculum is really, really exciting. Um, and I just think it's a case for us of, um, of refinement um, rather than revolution at the moment. But uh, th there are so many things we want to do. It's just making sure that it's coherent, I think, is the challenge for us, like it is for, for, for most departments. I think that's such a sensible kind of decision to make, though, to do it like the, the two themes per year. Um, we, like I said before, like I work in an IB school and we're kind of forced in the middle years programme to do four. You have to do four. And there is... You can do a bit of jiggery pokery, I suppose, and, and kind of pretend that you're doing four and actually do two, but you are kind of forced, really, if you play by the rules, you are forced to do four. And it kind of, it makes you, it forces you back into that old kind of approach of siloed um, skills or siloed kind of focus on a text because you can't really be expected to interleave all that much in, in the space of like six to eight weeks um in in the same way like you were saying before about like you you want the students to be able to sink their teeth into something and you don't feel like you can interleave that much in in such a short space of time so i think two themes um yeah i think i think that's such a good idea and yeah some lovely ideas as well in terms of like you, you mentioning the um um the environment but also alongside like kind of more classical things as well 
I think yeah, I think what we want is for the learners to be able to make connections as well. Um, mm. So, for example, you know, we've got Shakespeare anchored in both year seven and year nine. Um, but for example, we would we would argue that the challenge is built in. So in year nine, when they're coming across and they're encountering Macbeth, um, the learners there are noticing that the sort of historical context and that introduction to Shakespeare they got in year seven is built upon explicitly in that year nine unit. So in year seven, they may be learning about Shakespeare's background and, you know, the Globe Theatre and the sort of, you know, that, that sort of approach to the text. But then by the time it comes to year nine, they're actually actively applying mm. co a contextual lens to the play, you know, so mm. that there's that clear sort of building and progression model. You know, even in our year seven um, unit on Shakespeare, we, we were fortunate enough to do a little bit of collaboration with the, with the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. So they're even in year seven, they're having the opportunity to listen to experts talking about themes and ideas in the Midsummer Night Stream. Um, and I think that's been a, a game changer, possibly because of lockdown, that you can actually get in touch with these mm. writers and these authors and you can mm. you know, beam them live into your classroom, um, which is a real, you know, privilege for us as teachers as well as for our for our learners. Yeah, hundred percent. They've got well, they haven't got much else to do with the, or they didn't have much else to do at that point. So, um, yeah. Well, the, the the only thing that remains for me to say, Chris, is just thank you very much for giving up your time today and offering some insights in. Uh, we don't we don't hear enough, I think, about the changes that are going on in Wales, but more broadly than that, it sounds like you're doing some fantastic things over there in Swansea. So, thank you so much for sharing that and sharing your time with me today. Thanks for having me on.